Hi, everyone. Welcome to The Pacemaker. I'm your host, Roman Stolarov. I'm here with a very close friend of mine uh, from graduate school, Dr. Jesse Kirkpatrick. Uh, I've known him for, for uh, eight years now, I believe, as a scientist as well as a ballroom dancer. <laughs> but maybe that's a topic for a different episode. Uh, Jesse, uh, would you mind introducing yourself to the audience? Definitely. So my name is Jesse. I am um, a postdoc in uh, Sangeeta Bhatia's lab at MIT in the Koch Institute. Um, I did my PhD also in, um, in Sangeeta's lab um, through the Harvard-MIT Health Sciences and Technology PhD program. And um, I'm also now a, a medical student, so hoping to be a physician scientist down the road. So my, my PhD work and now my postdoc work focuses on using engineered tools to enable earlier and more accurate detection of different types of diseases, most um, notably cancer. And so um, there are a lot of different ways we can think about how we can use engineering to develop better tools to diagnose cancer, which I'm sure we're going to get into. Um, but specifically during my PhD, I was focusing on lung diseases, in particular lung cancer. And now as a postdoc, I'm transitioning to focus on um, a, a cancer of the, the bile ducts called cholangiocarcinoma. And without getting too much into the details here at first, uh, would you broadly describe uh, what the technology is that you worked on? Totally. Um, yeah, so when you think about engineering for diagnostics, so like the typical diagnostic that you think of is like, you know, a biomarker, like something you can detect in the blood or in the urine or in the saliva. We've all done like the nasal swab for COVID. Um, those are all examples of, of fluids or sources for biomarkers. You can also think about like imaging tools, right? So you can, for, for lung cancer detection, you can like do a CT scan, you can like see a nodule, you can do an MRI, you can do a PET scan where you can, you know, inject the patient with some kind of like radio labeled glucose and that can show you where there's enhanced uptake of glucose which is a surrogate for metabolic activity so a lot of different types of diagnostics out there um in particular but they but they they all have like challenges right there there are um blood biomarkers or like other you know urine saliva biomarkers they're often not sensitive enough for a disease like cancer um, and they're also often not specific enough so why are they not sensitive or specific enough? Well, focusing on sensitivity, the blood is a very, very large volume, right? We all have five liters of blood, give or take. And if you want to detect cancer at an early stage, you need to have an extremely sensitive test because tumors are like really, really small, um, you know, at the early stage compared to the rest of the body. So whatever the tumor is producing that goes into the blood is going to be diluted in that large volume of fluid. And when you compare that to all of the biomarkers that are being, or all the you know molecules that are being shed from other parts of your body into the blood, it's a very, very small amount, right? So it needs to be able to, to detect a very, very small amount of something very specifically. And for cancer, it's just a fundamental limitation that we can't do that. So something that I've been working on is how can we use engineering to overcome the limitations of biology, right? What we, we don't need to be dependent on whatever it is the tumor decides to put into the bloodstream. We can instead deliver something to the tumor that can act as kind of like a, a pro biomarker or a pre biomarker 
they can then be modified in some way within the tumor and then send out some kind of a signal to the outside world. That can be either a molecule that ends up getting shed into the bloodstream or goes out into the urine or gets breathed out, or it can be something you can then detect by imaging, but with higher sensitivity and specificity than what the biology would do on its own. So I, I want to ask you like a lot more about the synthetic biomarkers, um, but but just to kind of you know contextualize this field a little bit, uh, can you give a few examples of natural biomarkers and you know how and where they're used? I can, um, and if I couldn't, then you'd have to take my PhD away from me. So, <laughs> <laughs> um, so natural biomarkers. Um, so for so let's think about like. So let's think outside of cancer for now, because like there are not a lot of natural biomarkers for cancer. So every time you've gone to the doctor or, you know, many times you've gone to the doctor and you've gotten a blood test, they're looking for things like glucose. They're looking at your red blood cell count. They're looking at your iron. So these are all things that are telling the doctor something about what's going on in your body, right? For, I don't even remember what I just said. Red, <laughs> red blood cells might be telling you like, oh, is this, is this individual anemic, right? Iron shouldn't have chosen things that are so similar to each other because iron can also help you determine why you're anemic. But then things like, uh, uh, I can't even remember what the other thing was that I said. Oh yeah, I said glucose. Um, so like glucose is, is a good, can be a good biomarker for like, you know, diabetes, right? If you're not, if your glucose levels are high, that means your body isn't processing glucose properly. So that can be a biomarker for diabetes. When it comes to cancer, there really aren't very, very good, um, like blood biomarkers for cancer. Um, so there are some that are called like carbohydrate antigen 199 or CA199, there's CA125, there's PSA. So these are all tests that might be done for various different types of cancer, but they tend to be very insensitive for early stage cancer, and they can also be nonspecific, so they can be elevated in other types of diseases. So for so PSA, I think is a, is a particularly um, a particularly controversial one because there. So it, first of all, it can be it can be increased in diseases like benign prostatic hyperplasia, which is just kind of a benign enlargement of, of the prostate. It can be increased because of inflammation of the prostate or injury to the prostate. Um, and then it can also be totally normal in patients who have prostate cancer. So if you see an elevated PSA, does that tell you that you should, well, what should you do with that? Should you try to, should you remove the prostate? And then that subjects the patient to like all kinds of complications. Um, or should you just watch it, but then maybe like it turns into cancer and then it metastasizes before you know what to do with it. So those are some of the challenges, I think, of existing biomarkers for cancer. So with something like PSA, I mean, I understand there's a lot of variability, um, but it still made it to the clinic and it's still very commonly used. Uh, so, you know, what what are the, the thresholds of, um, you know, of application that a particular biomarker has to meet in order to be used in the clinic. So when you think about biomarkers, there are several like quantitative metrics you can think about. And then there are also several like practical considerations. So in terms of the quantitative metrics, 
you've heard the terms like sensitivity, specificity, positive predictive value, negative predictive value, false positive rate. Like these are all these are all words that have different meanings, but they all matter, right? Like sensitivity tells you um, if you actually have the disease, how good is the is that biomarker at detecting the disease? Specificity is if you don't have the disease, how good is the biomarker telling you that you don't have it? Right. So sensitivity, high sensitivity would be if you have the disease, the biomarker is going to turn up positive. Specificity, high specificity is if you don't have the disease, the biomarker is going to turn up negative. So those are the kind of the core quantitative metrics. But then there's also like the the more like logistical considerations. Like if you get a positive test, is that actionable? And so what does that mean? So if you get a positive test, what are you going to be able to do something that's actually going to be able to improve or extend that person's life? PSA, going back to PSA, you get a positive test. Is that actionable? Maybe, but if the action that you take is to remove the prostate or to do surgery on the prostate or to do a prostate biopsy, all of which come with potentially severe com complications like, you know, loss of, uh, you know, loss of bladder function, um, uh, uh, there, there, there are several, um, those, those, you know, uh, those complications might make it actually inadvisable to even do anything about it. So you really need to make sure that when you develop a diagnostic, um, that you can do you, it, the, the result of the tests will, um, make you change the way that you would treat that patient for the better. Got it. So, so I'm hearing that even though PSA is, you know, has been approved by the FDA and is uh, commonly used um, as a test for for prostate cancer, you're saying even even though that's the case, it's not that useful actually. So, as I understand it, and I am not yet a doctor, but I think that PSA, um, yeah. So I think that PSA is most useful when you already have a a diagnosis of prostate cancer. So if you want to monitor the response to therapy, um, mm -hmm. PSA is actually useful, right? You start off at a 10,000, you get your prostatectomy or you get the, your, uh, you know, anti-androgen therapy, then you see that drop off. And then you can also see, oh, it's creeping back up again. Maybe you need to change your, your dose or do something else. That's interesting. So, so it's really the relative value of the PSA not the absolute value. That's interesting. Yeah. I think that like if you look at, I mean, there's also, yeah, I think that the change in, in the value is is very relevant. Um, and I think that for early detection, it's still incredibly controversial whether PSA uh, should even be used at all for screening. Got it. Got it. So I, this is really cool. I want to get to the synthetic biomarkers, but first I, I have a little bit of a, a side question. You have to take away from the sponsor. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Um, so for something like a blood glucose test, which is commonly used to detect diabetes, and there is like a threshold for, you know, if you have, you know, above a certain amount, you're pre-diabetic and above that you're diabetic. Uh, how is it that with one marker across many, you know, different people, presumably with, uh, potential comorbidities and just different genetics, uh, we were able to come up with a one-size-fits-all detection threshold for a disease. And why why would that approach not work, for example, for certain cancers? Yeah. 
So I think this comes down to there's there's another um, there's another idea out there um, in the world of diagnostics. It's called a surrogate biomarker, and what a surrogate biomarker is is it is a surrogate. It is it is a biomarker that is a surrogate for some endpoint that actually does matter, right? Like no one dies of elevated glucose. I shouldn't say that because like someone's going to, one of your listeners is going to go into the internet and find a case study of someone who died of, of elevated glucose. But the reason that elevated glucose is, is important is that it is a surrogate biomarker for the endpoint of diabetes, which comes with all of the, you know, associated risks um, that, that, that come with, with having diabetes. Um, same with, with uh, like high cholesterol for atherosclerosis, right? Like you don't die you don't die of having elevated cholesterol. You die of having an atherosclerotic plaque that ruptures and goes to your brain or to your coronary arteries and causes a stroke or a heart attack. So it has been shown that glucose happens to be a good surrogate biomarker for diabetes. It's not a perfect surrogate biomarker, um, which is why there's, you know, now... More recently, there's been the development of like the hemoglobin A1C test, which actually looks at your average glucose over weeks, um, as opposed to like a single glucose at a, at a single point in time, mm-hmm. um, which is actually a better predictor of your of your diabetes risk. Um, so, I think that it just it, it really just comes down to the biology Got it. and the natural biology of diabetes makes it such that an endogenous biomarker like glucose allows it to be predictive of your risk, but with cancer those endogenous biomarkers, those biomarkers that the disease or that your body produces are just not good enough to predict your risk of cancer, at least not any biomarkers that we have yet discovered. Got it. Got it. So I'm hearing that, you know, in a way, uh, diabetes itself is really a, a, a surrogate prediction for a lot of other disease states. And because glucose is kind of you know, you mentioned that the glucose test is a surrogate biomarker, and it's once removed um, from the the uh, uh, pathologies that you'd be worried about. Um, there's maybe a little bit more wiggle room in the detection threshold as opposed to um, a biomarker for a particular cancer where you're directly predicting the pathology. I don't know if that makes sense. Yeah, I mean, I see, I see what you're saying. I think that I think that it's I think that it's less about the fact that like there's there's more wiggle room with with so i think that i mean the like psa and these other like you know cancer biomarkers that i mentioned like ca125 and ca199 those are also like surrogate biomarkers right they're not they're not you're not detecting like the cancer itself you're detecting a biomarker that is like predictive of of the cancer um but it just so happens that it's it's really like these things are empirically determined. You couldn't necessarily predict this from from first principles. It just so happens that I mean I, I think that I think that maybe one thing that's worth noting here is that um, one thing that makes a, a a biomarker a better biomarker is if it is directly linked in a causative way to the disease pathology. So glucose directly leads to diabetes, right? You have high glucose, you you know, I'm talking about type two diabetes, you have high glucose, you um, end up with like, you know, insulin resistance in your tissues, you end up with burnout of your pancreatic beta cells, and then you end up with diabetes and the inability to 
um, to to take in glucose and the inability to to to, to process it appropriately and these chronically elevated glucose levels which result in all the downstream sequelae um, and i should say that actually elevated gluc maybe elevated glucose wasn't a great example of something that doesn't directly cause pathology because actually elevated glucose itself does cause pathology um, so that's something that's worth that's worth noting um, whereas i guess the hypercholesterolemia the cholesterol leading to atherosclerotic plaques and risk of cardiovascular complications is really like a more classic example of a um of a uh, of a good surrogate biomarker because it's really it's not the cholesterol itself that's in your blood that's causing the pathology but it's the fact that that cholesterol gets taken up into your arteries um, and then that, that nucleates all of these other uh, you know inflammatory processes that can happen in your arteries and then that eventually leads to the plaque rupture and the cardiovascular events got it got it so so really um the, this glucose test has been successful, um, and in part, it's because literally diabetes is defined as having a high level of glucose, as opposed to, for example, a particular cancer is not necessarily defined by the presence of a biomarker for that cancer right. in a, some high level in the blood. Right. The glucose is leading directly in a causative way to the diabetes and to the downstream consequences. The cholesterol is leading directly to the atherosclerosis and the downstream consequences. PSA is not leading directly to the tumor formation and the metastases. The PSA is being produced by the prostate cancer cells, but it's also being produced by normal prostate cells. Okay. So the, the mere presence of that molecule in your blood doesn't tell you anything about something that's going to happen in the future because it's not directly causing it. Okay, okay. Got it. So, so I think you know we we definitely strayed away a little bit from. from <laughs> what were we talking area. about again? <laughs> right, right. <laughs> um, so, you know, to to transition a little bit now to something that's more relevant to your research, which is, uh, as you mentioned, the synthetic biomarkers. Uh, so you mentioned that natural biomarkers have these disadvantages and that they're um, often present in very um, dilute concentrations. Uh, in the in what is a, a large volume of blood, um, they are non often non-specific, um, and they're natural, so we don't really get to you know we don't get to select anything that we want um, to interrogate. So so talk to me about synthetic biomarkers. How do they address this problem? Yeah, so synthetic biomarkers. Um, is kind of a way of getting around like the inherent limitations of endogenous biomarkers. So um, the idea is, okay, if, if the tumor is not producing something that we can detect in a biological fluid in a way that predicts the disease, why don't we instead use engineering to try to deliver something to the tumor itself um, in order to interrogate a process that is actually detectable and relevant. So I guess this this discussion about like, you know, about biomarkers that are more causative versus biomarkers that are more correlative, right? We were talking about, you know, glucose as an example of a biomarker that is truly causative of diabetes. PSA is a biomarker that is correlative, correlated to prostate cancer, but not causative. I think that's, a, that's I think, a, a useful way to think about synthetic biomarkers as well. Um, often with, hmm, you know, this is actually like, I think this is 
it's a useful this is a useful way to think about this which i i haven't really thought too much about before but if you think about cancer it's it's very it's it's very much of a of like an internal process i mean yes like cancer can be caused by environmental factors it can be caused by you know xenobiotics things you ingest um, you know, s- exposure to UV radiation, um, inhalation of cigarette smoke. Um, but once you've, once you've caused that, those genetic mutations in cancer, it's really like a, an, an, like a self-driven process, right? You have genetic mutations that kind of allow the cancer to, um, to proliferate. Then, you like, you know, as something proliferates, that introduces more opportunities for, for mutations to occur. Um, sometimes there are, there are like two hits where you need, you know, another environmental factor to come in and, and cause another genetic mutation. But, but for the most part, it becomes kind of like an autonomous process. So it kind of makes sense that it would be difficult to detect a causative biomarker in the blood, right? Like what causative biomarker in the blood could you detect that directly leads to cancer. So I think the necessary answer to that is delivering something to the tumor so that you can actually detect those causative processes happening locally. So there are many different ways that you could think about designing something that could go into the tumor and detect those causative processes. Um, The one that we think about in in our lab is is enzyme activity so there's a, a class of enzymes that we call that are called proteases and proteases are enzymes that are essentially responsible for cutting other proteins and proteases there are, there are over 550 different types of proteases in the body they play a role in normal biology but they are especially critical for cancer because um, we classically think about cancer as having like all these hallmarks where there's, you know, there's, there's the initial genetic mutation that causes the growth, but then the tumor cells need to recruit blood vessels. And then you need in order to, you know, in order to, to feed the, this growing tumor. Um, and then, you know, they need to invade, they need to break down the, like the surrounding tissue and they, they need to be able to crawl through that tissue and get into blood vessels and then metastasize to other organs and crawl out of the tissue, out of the blood vessels into the, the new tissue site break down tissue around there, all these processes require proteases, right? The proteases are responsible for breaking down all the matrix, all the surrounding tissue mm-hmm. that allows the tumor cells to spread, allows the blood vessels to come in. So proteases are playing a role in all these processes. And so you can think about the proteases as really being responsible for allowing the tumor to grow and spread and metastasize. So if you could, so what we have come up with is the idea you know, I say we, which is generous because it was smarter people who came before me, but we, <laughs> the royal we, you know, in, in, in academia, you can say we to mean <laughs> yourself, or you can mean say we to mean other people who have nothing to do with you. Right. Which is, so you can use it to your advantage or your disadvantage, whichever, depending on you know the, your mood. Um, so, so what we've done is we've, we can talk more about this, but we figured out a way to um, deliver nanoparticles directly to the tumor and then detect those proteases and then send a signal out to the rest of the bot to the to the outside world either through a urine test or through a breath test but then there are other different types of synthetic biomarkers that we can also talk about if you'd like 
So um, in, in asking you questions about this, should I say y'all or you? Um, I think that I think uh, you use use <laughs> <laughs> would be my preference. Got it. Well, I'm very interested in what use guys. Uh, what else you guys use guys have done with these synthetic biomarkers? Um, so it it sounds like uh, you had a degree of success with you know just using um, you, engineering a particular molecule that's um, that's targeted to proteases. Um, and using a readout of that to detect an early stage uh, cancer. Um, is it possible, do you think, that uh, one synthetic biomarker would be enough to detect a particular disease? Or is it the case that you know maybe you need 10 or 100 of them and look at some combination of factors in order to be able to make a conclusive judgment? Um, that's that's a great question, um, and one that I've I've thought about a lot recently as I try to um, think about how to yeah how to kind of prepare uh, or how to, how to make synthetic biomarkers for different applications. I I don't think it can be just one, um, and I'll tell you why. So, for one, cancer is, you know, we say the word cancer. But to, to, to describe this entity of these, like, you know, what, what is cancer? Cancer is cells from your own body that get changed in some way that allow them to grow and spread and in many cases metastasize. But this is a like an extremely heterogeneous group of diseases that would be like trying to develop a single diagnostic, a single biomarker for like all infections right? Like cancer is so heterogeneous. Different types of cancers make different types of enzymes. They have different processes going on. Um, and so if you think about, so, so in order to, to develop a, um, a biomarker that would be able to capture all the different types of cancer that you want to capture, even if you're only focusing on, let's say lung cancer, there are like so many different genetic mutations that can cause lung cancer. There are so many different like histological patterns of lung cancer. Um, you can't just rely on one, let's say one protease to be significantly elevated in all lung cancers above the background that you would expect from normal tissues, right? I mentioned that proteases are also made by normal cells, but they are made to a greater or to a dysregulated extent um, in cancer cells. So that's one thing. So the sensitivity would not be good enough with with just one probe because maybe you'd capture 20% of the tumors, but you wouldn't capture the other 80% that aren't mm -hmm. making it. Mm -hmm. And then for specificity, it also wouldn't be great because, because there are, as I mentioned, like you might have proteases that are being um, expressed both in normal tissue, but then also in other different types of diseases. For instance, like inflammatory diseases, those also are, are involve proteases. Fibrotic diseases also involve proteases. Um, infectious diseases involve proteases. So it's it's not really reasonable to think that you could develop a diagnostic that only t detects one type of protease. But because we are engineers, we can get around that by using multiple probes simultaneously. So, so remind me, what was the specific type of cancer that you worked on? 
uh, for your PhD? So my PhD, I was working on lung adenocarcinoma. Got it. Which is probably in that same category of there are a hundred different varieties of those and uh, a lot of heterogeneity. Totally. Yeah. You No, no two <clears throat> lung adenocarcinomas are exactly alike. So, so what's your kind of uh, intuitive sense? I mean, if, if it is the case that an early de- detection is developed for lung adenocarcinoma, uh, is that going to involve 10 biomarkers? Is it going to involve thousands of biomarkers? Uh, billions. Billions. Wow. <laughs> wow. So we have a long you way to go. You heard it here first, folks. <laughs> God, it sounds pretty hopeless. I don't know yeah, about the feeling anymore, Jesse. Yeah, sorry. You can, you can stop at the recording now. Um, so I can tell you what, I can tell you two pieces of data that we have that might help get at this question. So when you look at, at, um, at RNA level data, so for your listeners who are not, uh, who, who are trying to like strain their brains to remember their high school or first year, <laughs> freshman year of college biology. Not just your listeners, but your host. But your- <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, so there is the central dogma of biology where you have RNA. <laughs> that is not right. Wow. wow. Sorry. Even our Eric leading Lander, scientists don't remember bi- their high school biology. <laughs> um, so uh, we are not viruses. So we don't start it with RNA. We start with DNA, which then gets converted into RNA, which then gets converted into proteins. And, you know, if you're somebody who thinks about enzymes like I do, you might say, oh, well, actually, the dogma goes beyond proteins because the proteins also have to exert their function. And they don't just do that by just sitting mm-hmm. around doing nothing. They actually, many of them, like enzymes, have some kind of catalytic activity that needs to be activated through like post-translational processing or, um, you know, their the localization. PH. I, I don't remember that one being on the AP test. Yeah, it, it wasn't. And honestly, I've written to the to the examiners and um, <laughs> it, it's not pretty. And I, there are actually multiple restraining orders. <laughs> um but what was the question <laughs> tens or oh, thousands tens of, right right so um so if you look at just the rna expression in human lung cancers so you so there's a there was this incredible study that was um done by the cancer it was called the cancer genome atlas where they, where these many investigators from around the world took thousands and thousands of different tumor samples from across multiple different types of cancer, and then compared both their their genetic mutations, so that's the DNA, and their RNA expression, that's the RNA, to healthy tissue, and they found you know multiple different uh, you know many genes that are mutated, many genes that are upregulated in cancer. And so if you take that data, um, what we've found by using some some statistical methods that my collaborator knew how to use that I didn't, so thank you for that. Um, <laughs> once you get, once you, if you incorporate around 10 or so different protease genes, so these are just, so this is just on the RNA level, right? But the RNA eventually encodes for the protein, the protease. Um, so if you if you incorporate ten, 10 or so protease genes in that generalized linear model, you can get classification accuracy of approximately 100% um, of wow. tumor versus normal. So that's RNA level, right? So, you, you know, it's 
there's there's a few steps that's a few steps removed from you know from rna to protease or from yeah from rna to protease and then even another step removed from developing the, those probes that we can then administer to detect those proteases Got it. so we're a few steps removed but on the rna level it, need, it takes about 10 um and then in mouse models um we were able to detect lung cancer in two different mouse models of lung cancer. One was an ALK mutant model, and one was a KRAS and P53 mutant um, model. And we administered 14 um, nanoparticle probes into each of those. And we found that with almost 100% accuracy, um, we were able to distinguish the, uh, the, tumor, the tumor-bearing mice from both healthy control mice and mice with benign lung inflammation. And, and just out of curiosity, do you remember what the highest scoring single uh, uh, biomarker was in that set? That's that's a great question. Um, I don't remember off the top of my head, but um, but there 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 are some probes that that do have pretty high diagnostic power, but it's not perfect. Like you can, it's not perfect, even in this mouse model. And these mouse models are like super genetically homogeneous. So then if you start thinking about, you know, expanding beyond KRAS and P53 and L. The number's going to go down. The number's going to go, yeah, exactly. That's interesting. So, so, you know, really kind of a a follow-up experiment to test the robustness of this approach is to use mice of different, uh, I don't know what the word is, pedigrees, right? But yeah, like of genotypes or whatever you want to call it. Um, exactly. So you, so you could do that. But even so, even with like, even with every single lung cancer mouse model that's ever been developed, it's still not going to match the heterogeneity of humans. So eventually you kind of just have to say like, all right, we've done enough testing in mice. Like we have this panel. Like at this point, we just kind of have to, to try it in patients. And what is the total set of of you know, known uh, synthetic biomarkers that you could have thrown at this problem. I mean, you decided to throw 14. Uh, how many are known to the field? Is that about the number or is it much more? So the number is infinite. And the reason for that is that like as engineers, we can kind of, we can des- we can decide what, what the synthetic biomarker looks like. So just to give you, just to kind of like help you wrap your minds around what is, what the synthetic biomarker actually is. So it's a it's a nanoparticle. So it has a nanoparticle core that's just a polymer, polyethylene glycol. Um, and on that polymer, we have um, peptides that are designed to be... So peptides are short pre- proteins. They're just short protein fragments. And remember I said that proteases cut proteins. So you can design those peptides to be detected and cleaved by whichever protease you want. So you can just change whatever the amino acid sequence of that peptide is so that it can be detected, so that it can be cleaved by different types of proteases. Um, and, you know, I guess I guess I shouldn't have said infinite because technically, let's say the peptide is like, let's say it's eight amino acids long and there are 20 amino acids. Someone check my math. So there's, you know, eight to the tw- 20, right? Is that, is that right? I need my statistical that collaborator right. back. <laughs> so okay, so it's not infinite, but it's like approximately. It's beyond beyond anything that is actually conceivable to produce um, synthetically. Interesting. So so there's kind of if if we were to do this experiment where we use heterogeneous mice 
and you know give them all different comorbidities and really you know make them look like a like a very diverse population uh there is some hope that we'd be able to manufacture you know deliver some critical mass of different biomarkers and then apply some sort of you know maybe machine learning algorithm to be able to actually get an accurate answer even in that diverse population exactly yeah and and in the paper um we did end up using machine learning to build just like a you know machine learning quote unquote as a random forest classifier so it's not it's, this is not a you know this is not a, a neural net per se but using you know using a random forest classifier we were able to build these classifiers mm-hmm. um that could yeah that, that was how we ended up integrating those 14 you know that this 14 dimensional data set basically um to to get like a single number or a single binary classifier of yes or no cancer got it and, and that's kind of uh it, if you were to interpret that classifier that would be akin to asking like 20 different you know yes or no questions about all the different um biomarkers like is it is biomarker A greater than five or less than seven? Is biomarker and is biomarker B less than nine, etc.? And combining all that information to actually get um, uh, an accurate prediction is that that sounds right. But I feel like you, okay. who did a, who knows a lot more about machine learning, <laughs> would probably be able well, to answer that question better than me. <laughs> yeah, and I don't mean to get into the weeds there. I, I think I think my um, you know my my bigger question is whether there's you know, uh, an, an opportunity to do uh, sort of like deeper levels of pattern recognition on a wider array of molecules when we start investigating this problem at a more like with with much where much greater diversity is present. Mm-hmm. Um, sounds like the answer is probably yes. Yeah, I think the I think the answer is probably yes. I think that um, each of these, you know, when you start thinking about like multiplexed cocktails of diagnostics, then you start like, then like, you know, the folks who have been through like, you know, FDA regulatory processes are probably hearing that. I'm like, Oh God, are they, are each of those nanoparticles going to be like regulated separately? I was just going to ask you that. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, so I, I, I'm not the best person to ask about this. So there actually is a company that did spin out from, from this work. Um, the company's called glimpse bio and they actually did do a, um, a safety and efficacy phase one study um, in healthy volunteers using a cocktail of 19 of these nanoparticles. And there were no safety issues reported with with that study. So it does demonstrate the feasibility of that kind of approach, eventually, you know, gaining, you know, the, the clearance from the FDA to, to go forward with human testing. Wow, wow, that's wild. So it, it sounds almost like 19 uh, drug trials done in parallel, uh, all with the same result, which is that every single one of them is safe. Right. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I haven't like dug too much into the, you know, I, I don't even know if I have access. I'm not, a, I'm not a company person, but um, yeah, I, I do wonder, it does kind of raise questions about like when you have cocktails, how, how are those, how are those regulated? And, and, and what if you also wanted to swap out one of those nanoparticles for another, for let's say a different disease application, would you need to go through the same, let's say safety testing, or would you just have to go right into efficacy testing in that specific disease application yeah i mean i'm, I'm definitely not the person to to say obviously uh but it, it, it seems like if you're dealing with a particular set of molecules that have certain commonalities for example you know i'd imagine that the molecular structure of of synthetic of this the 19 synthetic biomarkers in the study might not be that different from each other uh then maybe the fda might be more permissive 
in lumping them together into a single cocktail. Right. I think that's right. Back back to this question of this sort of untenable variability. Uh, is there any work being done to take sort of the the results that we already have for a particular set of, of, of biomarkers and then sort of like reverse engineer the patient population where um, that those markers or that assay would be indicated for such that it would be very accurate. You know, so, so I'm, I'm just thinking, you know, if you if you select for patients of a certain demographic or a certain um, uh, uh, medical history, uh, could you then say that if you are a patient who meets these criteria, this is going to be a very accurate test? So are you saying for, for like a synthetic biomarker? Yes. That's a good question. You know, I think... I think that's something that that would be like really, really hard to predict without actually doing the clinical study. And that that kind of goes into, I think, one of the challenges of of, you know, bringing some bringing an approach like this to to market is it's it's hard to do. Right. Like this is most diagnostic, let's say like biomarker tests are relatively easy. And yet people who work on biomarkers are probably like, oh, it's so hard to get a biomarker approved. But Think about it. I mean, a traditional biomarker, you get a blood sample, you get like a urine sample, you get a swab of the cheek or of the nose or a sputum sample. They're all very like totally non-invasive. All it takes is just like a needle stick and you're done or at worst. Whereas with a synthetic biomarker, you have to like actually inject something into the patient, which A, the the bar for, for like safety for, for a biomarker has to be like, is, is incredibly high, right? It has to be like 100% or, or like incredibly safe for, for, hmm. you know, for, for someone to consider approving something that is not actually like treating a disease, but is that, but it's just detecting a disease. So it, it's hard to get at the question you just asked, which is, you know, about like subpopulations that might benefit from one test or another without actually doing the study. But just like just like sub subgroup analyses are done in, in other clinical studies, you could imagine doing a clinical study where you administer a panel of these cocktail a cocktail of these nanoparticles, and then based on let's say like the genotype of the cancer or like various other like you know features clinical features of that of the patients, you could discern like oh this patient population actually benefited a lot from this na- these nanoparticles. But these other patients didn't benefit from these nanoparticles. And then you could actually also, if you think about it, you could get information about, you could, you could look at like which specific nanoparticles uh, within the cocktail were beneficial to which groups. So you could, you could be learning sort of in real time from those clinical studies. But there's really not a lot of precedent for that, for, for, a, for a diagnostic to be doing those kinds of like subgroup. It's just, there's not a lot of, I mean, I can't think of a lot of precedent for that, honestly. Well, it sounds like there's not a lot of precedent for synthetic biomarkers, period, right? Like, like has there been a single one that's been approved by the FDA yet? Well, funny you should ask. <laughs> so, um, so there are a couple, there are a couple um, biomarkers that I think would fall within the category of synthetic biomarkers. Um, so one of them so is not for cancer, 
Mm. But the one that is like the most frequently used that I actually was literally just learning about in my my uh, my my GI class yesterday um, is a um, a ure the urease test for H pylori infection. Oh, so so what what exactly is H pylori? So H pylori is a bacteria. I'm taking microbiology too, so I can tell you. I can tell you uh, that it's a it's a uh, helical, spiral shaped. I guess you you don't really need to be taking. You could just need to you know know the English language. Helicobacter, so it's a helical, spiral shaped bacteria, wow. gram negative. Um, it is actually it colon. It is actually uh, we we are like fifty percent of people in the developed world are infected by it, um, and but most of us are asymptomatic. Got it. But a subset of us will go on to develop a peptic ulcer from H. pylori. And in order to diagnose H. pylori, um, there, are, there are several ways to do it. But the one that's most relevant here is called the urease test. And in that test, you, are, you basically um, you swallow a cocktail um, of some substance, which I can't remember exactly what the substance is, um, that contains uh, a, a heavy isotope of carbon. Um, and when, uh, when the H. pylori um, encounters that substance, I guess it must be something to do with urea. Um, when the H. pylori encounters that substance, it uses its urease to convert it into, uh, I believe, ammonia and, uh, C and carbon dioxide. And the carbon dioxide... Because the carbon of that carbon dioxide is radio is is uh, has a has a heavy isotope, you can then use I think they've used mass spec or maybe some other um, some other type of breath test to detect the amount of the um, of the isotope labeled carbon dioxide, and if it's above a certain threshold, then that is diagnostic for for H pylori. So that's an example of something that you can administer exogenously to the disease site in order to detect something that's happening locally that you wouldn't be able to detect um, through some other non-invasive or, or peripheral method. Interesting. And that one being in the area of, of infectious disease. Exactly. Got it. Got it. Do any Are any uh, synthetic biomarkers used for, for uh, cancer detection today? So... Not synthetic. To your knowledge, not, yeah. Not, to my knowledge, not not a not a synthetic biomarker. The way that we've been talking about it, which is something that you can administer into the body that then reads out through a urine, breath, or blood test. But the one that that is, I think, most adjacent is is the F uh, is the FDG um, PET scan. So that is an example of um, a a test in which. Uh, in someone who's suspected of having cancer, you can administer a radio-labeled um, like version of glucose, and that 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 F, it's called FDG. The FDG gets taken up preferentially by the tumor cells because they're more metabolically active, so they need more glucose. So they'll take up the FDG, and then you can use a you can do a PET scan. You can actually see these hot spots of this hmm. FDG. And that can help you localize the tumor. Well, do you think in most cases you're going to have to combine with some sort of imaging modality to get a good readout? Or are there other ways to attain a, a readout? I believe in your work, you used a urine test, right? Yeah. So that's, that's I think, a central question is if you have this 
if you, if you use a synthetic biomarker and you end up getting um, some readout in the urine or the breath or, or some other accessible biofluid, that doesn't tell you anything about localization, right? So I, I do think that in order for it to be actionable, right, going back to this point of actionability, it does need to be combined with imaging. Um, and I think the, the, the use case that, that I was really thinking about a lot when I was working on lung cancer was in patients who, patients who are at high risk for lung cancer, in particular patients with, with um, high pack year uh, smoking history, um, they are screened. They're eligible for screening with low-dose computed tomography, low-dose CT. And the problem with that method is that it is um, the, the, the positive predictive value is actually quite low. So if you get a positive, a positive low-dose CT test or you see a nodule, most of the time it's not actually cancer. Hmm. Most of the time it's something benign. So they get a lot of false positives. A lot of false positives, yeah. Um, so what do you do, right? This is similar to the, what we were discussing with prostate cancer. Do you biopsy it, which like can come with the risk of like pneumothorax or like a punctured lung? Do you remove the whole nodule, which right. like, you know comes with all kinds of risks, right? That's a, that's a surgical procedure. So not to, to mention expensive for the patient. Totally, yeah, exactly for the patient for the healthcare system. Um, and so what what we were really thinking about was um, a follow up test to that, where you could inhale a cocktail of these nanoparticles. And then with a urine test, that could tell you, is this likely to be cancer mm -hmm. or is this likely to be benign? Got it. Got it. So sort of combining two different tests. Exactly. Except it's not multiple biomarkers. In this case, it's two different modalities. Exactly. Got it. Now, that's very interesting. So, so yeah, I mean, the, the potential impact of the work, this work is super exciting, right? Uh, a lot of uh, therapies for many different kinds of cancers are much more effective uh, when they're performed earlier. That includes chemotherapy. That includes surgery. Uh, is there, you know, and, and with, with synthetic biomarkers, presumably you'd be able to detect a lot of cancers earlier because you get past this whole dilute concentration issue. Um, are there any particular, uh, diseases or, or disease, you know, states that you're most, uh, optimistic about, um, as far as being able to, let's say, translate this technology in the next 20 or 30 years? Yeah. So I think that's a great question. I think that probably what's going to end up happening is that the initial use case is not going to be early detection. So think about, so, and why do I say that? Well, early detection is hard. Early detection is really, really hard because you have to be detecting a really, really small thing in a, in a large sea of not tumor, right? Right. So I think that you can, so an, another example of this, that's that's really like moving ahead in the clinic is circulating tumor DNA. Hmm. So this is the idea that you can detect using a blood sample to a DNA that's shed from a tumor. Um, and that can be a pretty specific test because, you know, these mutant DNA molecules generally shouldn't be in your bloodstream. We can talk more about the you know, the false positives from, from circulating tumor DNA, which there are some, but. And this would be a, a natural biomarker, right? This would be an example of a natural biomarker, but an emerging natural biomarker. Got it. Got it. I think the circulating tumor DNA is super promising. Um, and it's already been really, really valuable um, clinically. And it, and it is indicated clinically for, um, for monitoring tumor progression and response to therapy. Um, and there, I believe there are actually some, 
some types of cancer in which like you can actually use circulating tumor DNA as part of like the diagnostic workup. Um, but those, but circulating tumor DNA made its first impact in the clinic in terms of like monitoring response to therapy. So you already have like metastatic mm. cancer. So you're, you have cancer all over your body, super high tumor burden. And you measure the, you measure the circulating tumor DNA and you can see, oh, wow, like you can, it's definitely detectable. It's pretty uh, high. It's that relative level thing again. Totally. Right? Yeah. yeah. It's all about signal to noise. And then, yeah, exactly. And then as you start treating, similar, as you said to like to PSA, as you're referring to, the, the, the tumor burden starts to go down and then you can also see the circulating tumor DNA go down in parallel. So I think that probably the first indication for synthetic biomarkers might be something similar where you're initially looking at either a, a more widespread, um, you know, disease process, um, like cancer, like metastatic cancer, or even potentially a, um, a, a benign disease process that's also associated with proteases. So the so glimpse bio they're they're focusing for now on non alcoholic steatohepatitis, which is a form of liver disease that results in um, inflammation and fibrosis, so scar tissue formation um, in the liver, and that's a somewhat convenient use case for two reasons. One, it's quite you know it's it's a it's not a super localized process, right? It happens like throughout the liver, so it doesn't need to be super super specific, and it does you know this this. The signal is higher, so you don't worry as much about the background noise. And then the other thing, which for those of you, you listeners who have worked on like anything in the nanotechnology space, nanoparticles really love the liver. <laughs> it's just like uh -huh. the liver like gobbles up nanoparticles. So it's 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 convenient to, to think about liver diseases um, when when using a nano based technology. Yeah, that's that's really interesting. You you have what on on the surface is you know a very uh, difficult set of problems. This you know early stage cancer detection or or uh, cancer detection period. Um, but by pulling a few of these levers, such as being able to use a cocktail or focusing on monitoring response to treatment, where as you said, the signal is much higher than it would be in an early stage cancer, um, and selecting certain subpopulations, uh, maybe you can actually get a diag you know, more diagnostics that are uh, accurate enough to be deployed in the clinic. And those w might even be the first ones to be deployed. Exactly. And then once, once you know, you've, you've proven the technology in these sort of like lower, like lower risk um, use cases, then you can start to think about these harder problems like early detection, which we're now seeing um, from, you know, studies from Grail and Thrive, who are the two big CTDNA um, leaders in the field, um, who, who are now starting to, to delve into the early detection space as well. Uh, got it. Well, it was really interesting talking to you today. Um, for those of you uh, who, who don't know this about Jesse, uh, his greatest contribution is actually uh, in the field of ballroom dance. Uh, so that's uh, what our next podcast will be about. <laughs> <laughs> so stay tuned. <laughs> All right. Thank you. It's, uh, it was great. Great being here. Um, you know, I, I can come on anytime you want me. Um, in fact, I'll, I can even be there for your next for your next guest. Um, you know, uh, I feel like I'm part of the gang now, you know, so, so have, me back, have me back every time. You said you already had a few restraining orders on you, right? <laughs> yeah. What's one more? I got right. Sure. Perfect. <laughs> Thanks, uh, everyone. Yeah. Thank you, Jesse. It's been, it's been great. Hey, guys. This is Roman again. 
really appreciate you listening to, uh, again, the, the very first podcast in this series uh, and taking a risk with your time. I hope it was interesting. If you like what you heard, please subscribe or follow uh, and stay tuned for future podcasts. Thank you.